0: May 40 here. So Russia and China had a big meeting this past week, and they were pledging their undying loyalty, their undying friendship, their undying commitment to each other. So how concerned should the rest of us be? And I say not very concerned. I remember I grew up in the Sacramento area from about age uh, 14 to 21. And there was the Sacramento Bee was the major newspaper. And then there was the Sacramento Union, which was a conservative paper, and it had about one quarter of the staff. And then around 1983-84, the Sacramento Union came out with its own sports section, like a special fold-out sports section on Mondays. And I happened to be friends with the sports editor of the Sacramento Bee, Joe Hamlin, because his son, Scott Hamlin, was in my class at Placer High School. So I asked, Scott, uh, asked Joe, I got to interview several times, Are you concerned about the you know, Sacramento Union and its, its new special fold-out sports section on Monday? He said, well, I'd, I'd be concerned if they hired you know, more reporters, but they still only have about you know, one quarter of the staff that we do. So just putting out a, a new section and putting in a lot of wire service copy, I don't think it's really going to threaten the Sacramento Bee. And so too, with this new Soviet-China alliance, China will not supply substantial weaponry to Russia because then China would be susceptible to the same kind of sanctions that the West put on Russia. And Russia and China have very different economies. And so the Chinese economy would be incredibly vulnerable to international sanctions right international sanctions would absolutely crush the chinese economy All right china needs the us basically to maintain the world trading system that's what has allowed china to get rich but it could be taken away at any time right it's not going to it's not going to last forever and so eventually right china is just going to implode i say in the next 10 years but you're probably wondering What does Richard Spencer have to say about all this? So
1: she said to Putin that nothing like this has happened for 100 years and isn't this so remarkable? And um, I think Boris said something to the effect of actually Russia has never been a vassal state until now, so it's been longer than 100 years. And I I think that's very accurate. I was kind of reminded of uh, uh, Xu and Lei's uh, comment about – I I think – kissinger it's all legendary but kissinger asked him what are your opinions on the french revolution and he said it's too early to tell i actually looked that up today because i i wanted to write something up on this but apparently um kissinger might have been asking him about the 1968 revolution in paris so actually... or revolution in quotes so it actually the, the comment is less ponderous in that context but it's still a very interesting comment and it gets it a, a kind of longer much longer time frame and one kind of lacking development in a way in the asian mind And uh, I I think it is kind of telling in that degree, even if it is apocryphal. Uh, But I've heard a lot of these. uh, There seems to be a common thread among people saying that this is a disaster and how could this be good? Um, You know, China and Russia are linking up and uh, this is going to be bad for America. (laughs) I think it certainly is a change, a move away from a unipolar world. And that emerged after 1991. And I think it's definitely at some point, this is going to affect the Chimerica relationship. I mean, this came in coincidence with talks about banning TikTok. Those are just two random data points, but I I think it's significant that they were all happening at the same time. And uh, and, uh, Blinken explicitly said that, you know, he didn't name the consequences, but he said there are going to be major consequences if Beijing begins assisting Russia in its war effort in Ukraine. And, you know, ostensibly, you could say Beijing was there to promote their peace plan, which I read. And it's just this completely two-dimensional thing that is almost like a parody of what Asians would come up with, uh, where it just said things like we need to get away from Cold War thinking. That was almost the thing that stood out and vague talk of peace and something. But there's nothing there. I think the main thing is that you can imagine Russia becoming a vassal state on a whole host of ways. Um, They could start pumping gas, uh, obviously, into China. Um, they have huge natural gas reserves, as we all know. Uh, if they do conquer Ukraine, you've got a breadbasket that can be go and feed China. China can't exist without imports of agricultural goods. Uh, that's a bit dubious, but I, I think that's a real thing. And uh, particularly if the America thing ends, uh, I, I can see China kind of see, you know, soft peddling any criticism of the invasion of Ukraine is basically a way of saying, well, we might do this to Taiwan and you guys, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. We're not going to criticize Russia too harshly. Uh, so that we, we don't get criticized. I mean there, there's a lot going on here. There's just a, a vassal status of Russia in terms of people. Uh, there's an overabundance of Asian males in China. Um, maybe they're looking for some Russian wives. I don't know. Um, all of the there, there's a natural alliance, a geographic alliance as well. so but there's no doubt of who will be the big brother in this relationship. I mean, after the Second World War when Mao visited Moscow and you know Stalin basically said, "I'm going to look westward, you look eastward, we'll run the world together. They were all buddy buddies clearly the Soviet Union, it was the vanguard of history, it was the engine of all this stuff, it, it was the guy on top. Now the situation is reversed. But anyway, I, I guess what I would say, just to kind of express my own personal feeling on this, is that I don't see it as a disaster at all. Um, you know, these things wax and wane, and you can go from, you know, Moscow on top in alliance with China, then there's a division of China in the Nixon era, and now China's on top of Moscow, and there's a division of the world. I mean, all of these things can come and go, and whether they're good or not is irrelevant on some cases. They, they just express the changes and population and economics, etc. But I ultimately think it's a positive development because it kind of shores up east and west. It gives us borders. Um, I don't know why people are terrified about no longer having China under our thumb or something. I mean, it's natural that they're going to grow up and leave. Um, I think the, ch- the Chimerica arrangement has been pretty disastrous in many ways. And uh, I think a little bit of xenophilia, uh, xenophobia, excuse me, is, is healthy. So I, I just see all of this as, as positive, in fact, and I don't think it's going to damage America. I think in some ways this strong division of the world and clear boundaries are, are going to actually help us be stronger and have a better sense of ourselves. So I, I, don't, I, I don't think this is a good thing for Russia. I, I think just being swallowed by the dragon is going to be a long-term devastating thing for Russia. And they fear you know regime change by the West or losing the war. Well, I would fear total dissolution, like be, literally being dissolved into a population of over a billion in this Chinese society. I would not wish that on my worst enemy.
0: Okay, here's a good uh, little clip from Michael um, Tracy. Let's,
2: let's, let's wrap it up. Is there any crime that the Russians could commit in Ukraine that would make you say, the Ukrainians have to win this?
3: Um,
4: I doubt there's really anything that could cause me to say, I'm now going to affirmatively endorse the indefinite perpetuation of warfare.
2: Genocide? If they said we are here to murder every single Ukrainian, our job is to wipe them off the face of the earth, would that be enough?
4: That would be all the more reason to, to me to pursue a cessation of the hostilities rather than an intensification of them. Because to intensify the hostilities would probably run in tandem with that, you know, ultimate devious design that you're suggesting that Russia like, could hypothetically declare as their objective.
0: Okay.
2: Michael, I disagree with that. I mean, so there's
0: always, play... again, there's always... It is America's obligation to pursue its own self-interest. It's not America's obligation to enforce uh, notions of international law or to stop genocide or to assist on the side of goodness against the side of evil right the nation state exists primarily to survive and protect its own people not to intervene overseas so no there's nothing that russia could do in ukraine that would that would say to me "Oh, the american military really needs to get get involved man we just can't sit back And here's the the key thing from reuters russia china are not creating a military alliance who says putin all right so putin and xi are professing friendship they're pledging closer ties but uh there's no military alliance between russia and china so is Russia on a path to being a vassal state of China? I don't think so because Russia still retains nuclear weapons, and Russia still has formidable amounts of natural resources. so no, I don't think that Richard is correct that uh, that the, the Russians are you know on a path to somehow you know, just becoming a vassal state of, of China. So what are the other states that one can assume will be swallowed in that vacuum? Mongolia, Kazakhstan. Well, when when China falls apart, all right, uh, this is going to be irrelevant. And China, we are watching the slow motion of China falling apart, right? We've been watching this for several years now. And China is disintegrating. Its economy is falling apart. And so the relative benefits of belonging to China Uh, going to decline relative to the cost. There's not going to be a China as we now know it in 10 years. So Russia's using Chinese yuan for payments. But uh, China has very strict currency controls. So why would you use a currency that cannot be freely used and freely traded? Is there any infrastructure at scale to get Russian raw materials to China by land? No, not really. And so to build that infrastructure would take years. And by that time, China's going to fall apart. And let's get a little wisdom here from Deep Left jerkle. You have this trend of
5: let's post picture, or pictures and videos of people getting beat up on the bus, of kids, little kids getting beaten up, like schoolyard fights, like middle schoolers punching each other. They are like, oh, see, this is what our country has become. We're victims. We're a little kid being beat. This is a metaphor for who we are. We're getting beat up. And the implication is never like, (laughs) the implication, when you watch a video like that, it's just, it's just feeling a victim mentality, right? It's never like, here's why we're going to win. Here's the plan. Here's the discernible success we're making. It's like, let's focus on, and, and see, the thing is, your brain can't distinguish between something actually happening and something that's simulated, so if you continue to watch videos over and over again of people getting beat up and people getting humiliated, and you're like, that's me, that's, and that's what ties us together. We're both being beat up. We're both being humiliated. We're both being subjected to this evil system. We're all victims. If you constantly simulate that in your brain, then then you become psychologically dependent upon it. You, you get like a dopamine that You get excited to lose because every time you lose, you can say, and see, that's, that's what justifies me. That's what makes me a morally superior person because I'm a loser, and I've lost more than anybody else, and it, that kind of competitive spirit gets redirected toward being the biggest loser and pointing out everything that's oh, this is discriminatory and this is you know the words, you know the phrases, so that's this obsession, and it just become it's pathetic, it's not attractive. Try going up to a girl with some of these political talking points. Hey, did you know that actually we're the real victims? Because we get beat up on school buses all the time. Did you know that? Did you know that we're actually more discriminated against? Do you know that actually we... Did you know that actually... (laughs) Did you know about... Yeah, hey, remember that war? We lost that war. We're losers. We've been losing for 70 years. We're losing our country. We're losing our civilization. We're losing everything. We just, just don't stop losing.
0: Okay, that's an interesting point from deep left Joe what is it, Kenneth Brown. I, I disagree because we live under an onslaught of mainstream media attention and elite attention to whenever a, a black person is treated badly by a, a white person. So clips of other, other people getting beaten up, you know, different, different directions of victimhood, right, are in a sense restoring sanity and restoring a sense of reality. Now, you can overdo the amount of water that you drink, right? You can, you can overdo how much you practice your religion. You can overdo psychotherapy. You know, every good thing can be overdone, including posting or, or viewing clips of people getting beat up on buses and in public squares. But uh, a, a moderate use of these clips, you know, reminding you uh, which, which groups commit disproportionate amounts of crime I think that grounds you in reality, and uh so I don't think it enhances a sense of victimhood and this idea that the brain just can't distinguish b- between you know what it sees on the internet and and real life right uh that's that's not true I mean we are capable of distinguishing. I just get tired of the clips of uh People getting beat up, flooding Twitter. It's a form of political and racial cuckoldry in which distant right people enjoy on a sick level. Well, it feeds the anger and it feeds the resentment. And many people, their primary source of energy and power is anger. Now, I don't think that's a healthy way to get your energy, your power, your your drive in life. But for many people, it does get them out of bed in the morning, it does keep them alive and alert and and aware and, and fighting for their cause so i think walking around with like a two out of ten level of animus against you know out groups who commit a disproportionate amount of crime against your in-group that that's perfectly healthy right so uh, enjoying these clips you know i uh, had a two out of ten one out of five intensity level uh, then I, I think that's healthy but yeah if it can be absolutely overdone. Walking around with a five out of ten chip on your shoulder is not going to be productive, right? That's going to cause you to, you know, just uh, have have a lot more problems in in the real world, right? The real world that we're living in let's get the parents
5: at least twice a year these are very simple expectations all parents are for it the idea that you can demonize this bill i I think it's outrageous because it's a perfectly good bill and it's the kind of thing that americans would expect congress to do with their money
6: well Emory, um... the the man who runs the senate uh... chuck schumer has said it's orwellian and it's dead on arrival essentially there so Is this just kind of a a PR optics game by House GOP? 100%. It is a messaging bill because it has no life after getting passed in the House because it was passed by House Republicans. I think what really you need to think about is going into 2024, why the Republicans want to make this a talking point. When you look at Pew Research, 50% of Republicans say students and how their parents are involved in education is one of their top priorities. And just close to where he's sitting right now, Glenn Youngkin, this is how he was able to win the governorship. At the last minute, he really started focusing on education and then he won independent voters and suburban households, very much so suburban women. So Republicans really view this as a way to potentially drive this message home to win 2024. So this is what the Hill says about what's actually in the bill. The measure would require schools to publish their curricula publicly, mandate that parents be allowed to meet with their children's teachers and make schools give them information to parents when violence occurs on school grounds. So Liz, why didn't any of the Democrats want to vote for that? Look, so I work in communications, I work in branding, and I got to say kudos to the people who wrote this bill because it sounds completely innocuous. Like, who would be against parental engagement? Who would be against safer schools? But if you scratch beneath the surface, you see that this is an attempt to bring the culture wars to the last place they should be, which is America's classrooms. It's a defense. Well, no, and, it's a defense oh, and against the culture wars. And, and, and why, do I, why do I say that? Um, Democrats in Congress said this looks a lot like state efforts that have led to book bans, to censorship of important topics. So let's introduce a few common...
0: Yeah, we don't want to get political, all right? The the left dominates education, and we can't, we can't can't we can't get political about that. We should just accept that the left dominates education in a completely neutral fashion so Republicans have stumbled on a winning issue right this is a great issue for Republicans and the idea that the left should just uh, by by the will of heaven dominate uh, how our public education system is run uh, deserves to be contested right this is how Glenn Youngkin got elected and it's a winning issue for Republicans and uh, they, sh- you know, they're they're playing a smart game here. I, I don't see any significant downside to Republicans pushing this kind of legislation. Okay, here are the decoding the gurus on. Stephen Stones Mollinger. appearing on
7: Joe Rogan or something is very important because they don't have access to such mainstream platforms and they they can you know lots of people are like oh it's just a joke you know and people know alex jones is just a crazy guy but when you have such a large audience like joe rogan there will be a portion of your audience that like says well that was funny let's go like check out this guy's content and then like a portion of that that sticks around and you know starts to go down the conspiracy rabbit hole so it's mm-hmm. it's i've seen various people that are deplatformed, platformed and nearly all of them complain mm-hmm. about the loss it makes to their income and audience reach so it is effective like yeah uh,
8: yeah like i I think most people would agree with that i think it's like it's interesting like i don't have a fully thought out philosophy and um about this but it is interesting to think about that free speech question because the those principles of free speech sort of came about in it during times i think it was the 17th and 18th centuries when you had publications in places like london that were Mm -hmm. you know ranging from little you know basically since they invented the printing press there were there was some means of of mass communications whether it was just like little flyers and caricatures and mini newspapers um and you know it was at that time that the authorities the king and whatever would get annoyed by that stuff and and would and would enforce some rules and and then it was obviously seen as a great liberal achievement to to put an end to that kind of government censorship and and to allow publishers to 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 publish anything and and not to lock people up for giving a speech on a, on a, on a street corner or, or arranging a political meeting or publishing some kind of magazine right yeah. so that that was seen rightly as a great step forward from for, from a liberal point of view but at, that, at those times there were always these natural speed limits and natural friction involved in the process of speech yeah like it cost money to, to distribute uh, a newsletter um you generally had to convince people to pay for your magazine you, you you would call for an event in a particular physical location and people would actually have to travel there and turn up so mm-hmm. there were these natural impediments <laughs> to to spreading information so I, actually it was it made perfect sense to not have any controls about whatsoever because you really want to maximize it what's happened since social media is that's completely changed yeah we've just eliminated all of the friction from communication and we're seeing a new environment where where there is uh, you know the, the power of communication has become so much greater. So, I think you know. I, I say this as like a dyed in the wall liberal type person, but I think maybe some slightly fresh thinking is required to deal with the technological environment we find ourselves in. And, yeah. I, don't, and I don't mean you know, okay, now let's just let's, let's try authoritarianism now. I mean, let's, <laughs> let's, let's 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 think about things like moderation and and editorial oversight and think about what role that should play. I
7: yeah. thought you were going to go Scott Adams. You know, is a benevolent dictator being <laughs> so bad? But it, it, like. I, I think the, uh, yeah, that, you know, Trump's case is an interesting one because there's there's legitimate, like, obviously he was given a lot more leeway than normal users would be, or even like celebrity users, right? Because he, he almost threatened, I mean, he did kind of threaten nuclear war on the platform of Korea, about, the, you know, his big button. And, and he-
8: is that, against, is that against the terms of service? Uh, yeah, it seems <laughs> like it should be. And,
7: and he also, you know, he targeted individual people when he has like, as we've seen, a massive and fairly unstable follow a uh, group of followers who you know if he singles out people that uh, are it's going to you know make the, them have a very bad day um and the issue of like to what extent it's a public necessity or public good that he has this platform just to pump out uh, like his rhetoric and disinformation information is i think it's a legitimate question now when he was the president i think there's a stronger argument to be made that uh, despite what he's using the platform for there's a need for the public to kind of have access to it, or like at least that there's, there is an argument we made that the, the like leaders, elected leaders of countries have more leeway. But but as he came to his end of term uh, and and as he incited uh, like crappy, but still real insurrection, attempting the, you know, the, the like the inept capital storming, that it became like, so what happened was he cut the platform from everything, right? Including like all these funny services, which I thought he was ever gonna use. But the um in that case, I kind of think there, like now, we don't get Trump's tweets daily, right? It's coming from secondhand sources mainly reporting, and it definitely seems to have made a difference in yeah. terms of how much reach he has. And I, I kind of think, as a private citizen, that I, I'm 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 okay personally. I'm okay yeah. with yeah, that. Yeah, but Chris, I
8: mean, just to be argumentative, I think it's I think it's dangerous to argue from examples. You know what I mean? Like you could definitely nominate particular people and go. Mm. The world's
7: better off without them, right? And there's no doubt the world. <laughs> I'm not, better I'm not better advocating without... his extermination. No. Yeah,
8: so right. By the same logic, you could. That's the problem, right? So, so I'm, I'm being argumentative.
7: No, I, I get yeah, that, but... and like I would, but I would say that you know, focusing on specific cases. So I don't like that when it's done as, oh, this person was banned, and like, so we need to focus on this case, and that's like hugely relevant. But when it comes to someone like Trump. I think there's a whole bunch of questions and ones that are quite unique to him because of the role that media and social media played in him even becoming a candidate in the first place. And conventional media as well, right? Like the just him having a TV show, him being invited on uh, to and, and being the like the voice of the Burfer movement. All but of also
8: these- calling controversy and attracting the attention of all the mainstream networks, not only yeah. Fox. So, that- so, yeah, we can almost blame the mainstream media primarily for these lies, yeah. But then um,
7: once he was in place, right, Twitter became a, a like outlet for his his like governance in a way. Like maybe the mean way that he got his message out um, to to a broader yeah, public. It's and
8: it certainly cemented the cult that he uh, was creating. I'm um, sorry, Chris to interrupt um Madad is uh, free to join. So okay.
3: we yeah. Sound quiz.
2: All right, from a little snatch of a song, can you tell me the song I was just listening to right before the show? Little old little old lady got mutilated late last night. <laughs> little old lady got mutilated late last night. Oh, wow, good, good. You got some musical chops, man. Uh, ooh, werewolves of London. Yeah, great song. Tragic, again, that Warren Zeman, I right? died pretty young. His hair was perfect. I was think of Tom Cruise in that movie where he did that. Um, yeah, great song. Little old lady got mutilated late last night. A very hypnotic, interesting song. And so simple, right? Bum, 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 bum. That's it. That's the whole thing, right? Oh, you heard that song in Californication? My God, wasn't that, wasn't that series just a scraping of the lint-belly bowels of hell? Oh, my God. Isn't that, wasn't just The Color of Money, right? Yeah, that that show, my God. Well, I guess that's David Duchovny, right? He's a serious degenerate and uh, made a show to match. Oh, my God, yeah. All right, well, uh, thank you, everyone, for dropping by. What a lovely uh, surprise to see everybody here on a Saturday. And I'm like, I'm yours. I am your willing sex slave of reason. Uh, Is he still a sex addict? I don't know, man, but he uh, probably had a pretty bad childhood. And uh, a bad childhood plus good hair. Almost always means promiscuity for men. It's a really, really... One thing that saved me was the scalp. Uh, Warwolves, have you ever, ever read Marvel UK Excalibur comics? No, honestly, I haven't read comics since I was 12. Sorry, it's just not my thing. I know, it's bad, maybe. But, uh, yeah, listen, hit me with your questions. I am thrilled to have you. If you'd like to support the show, you can just tip right ahead. Uh, I do a shirtless for tips. Uh, I've just given up on all human dignity. And uh, are you into hi-fi stuff? No, one of my ears got a little fried from um, uh, treatments, cancer treatments and so uh yeah pit me with uh, so i don't I, I like listening to music but i don't it's not really worth me having hi-fi i've got one great ear and one am ear oh, fm am so i don't. ah you know it uh, sure beats the alternative of the treatments not working your only fans debut the other day was fire <laughs> yes it was fire and it takes a brave man who's pushing 57 to take his shirt off but i'll do it man if it helps philosophy i'm in if it helps spread the word i'm in so yeah what's on your mind what are your questions uh what are your comments what can i help you with what can i serve you with what do you object? To?
3: In defense of the
5: Rothschilds, really? In defense of the Rockefellers. Well, by the end of this video, you're gonna learn to love and appreciate elite banking families. You're gonna just think warm, fuzzy feelings about them. You're gonna wanna hug and kiss them. You're gonna wanna cheer them when they're walking down the street. Most people have never met anyone powerful. Um, we see them on TV, we hear about them in the news. No one's ever really sat down with these people and gotten to know them. Very few. Like. We talk about uh, six degrees of separation, right? You can think of, oh, well, I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. And I don't think ultimately, well, there are some people who oppose Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates because they think they are, they don't like their personalities. Uh, But I don't think that's most people. I don't think most people oppose financiers and billionaires and CEOs because they are weak or androgynous or nerdy. I think the reason why there is a hatred of Bill Gates or the Rothschilds of Rockefellers or any of these Soros, it's because we view them as, maybe I shouldn't use the term we, I I should say that the hatred of elites, of globalists, of international bankers, I would say that it comes from a belief that they are either completely incompetent and messing everything up or that they're intentionally poisoning us and destroying us and attacking us and that we're locked in a battle and that they are enemies and that they are consciously, maliciously attempting to undermine the great democratic masses of people. They are trying to attack the nation and the folk. And this is the exception that people have when they
3: hate on the elites. And I want to challenge that.
5: You know, I had a discussion today. Somebody brought up the CIA. And they're like, oh, the CIA does all these bad things. And some people even say we should abolish the CIA. I'm just sitting there and I'm listening. I'm like... Are you going to do that? Am I going to do that? Are either of us going to abolish the CIA? No, no one's going to abolish the CIA. And in the wider course of the discussion, we were talking about the Vikings. You know, the Vikings, let's say you're, you're a peasant in Ireland, or you're a monk, or you're a Slav. And you wake up in the middle of the night and the Vikings are coming. And they're killing and they're pillaging, they're looting, they're stealing. And those who surrender, they bind their hands and they throw them on boats and they sell them in the slave market. Often these people are sold in the Mediterranean slave trade. And they end up in the hands of the Ottomans, or they end up in the hands of Muslims. This is who the Vikings were. You know, this is what they did. And this is what people had to suffer under. And you know, for hundreds of years, Viking raids across Europe. And even after the Vikings, you had the Barbary slave trade. You had North African pirates continuing the work, kidnapping people, selling them into slavery, sex slavery, harems, working them to death, castrating them. I mean when we talk today about chemical castration, when we talk about hormone replacement, when we talk about emasculation, when we talk about imprisonment, when we talk about criminal justice, when we talk about you know, police killings, when we talk about any of these really uh, sex trafficking, when we talk about uh, wage slavery, I mean, I guess it is kind of unique to talk about like the poisoning of the air and the water. And I am very sensitive to that. And I am very concerned with that. But you know, my perspective is that Ultimately, when we talk about the pollution of the air and the water, whether it's by microplastics, whether it's by forever chemicals, these chemicals are not just being produced randomly, and they're not being produced arbitrarily or in and of themselves. They are industrial byproducts of processes intended to...
0: Yeah, so the primary question should be, as opposed to what? So to the extent that we have a globalist system right now, right? how would we be improved... By having say more autarky more self sufficiency, and there are negative sides to industrial production, as deep left Joko was just mentioning there's there's pollution, but what if we didn't have any of this industrial production all right would the overall quality of our lives be better or worse with more or less globalism with more or less democracy with more or less socialism with more or less capitalism, all right the United States, like every major country is a combination of it has some democratic elements it has some oligarchic elements it has some dictatorial elements it has some socialist elements it has some capitalist elements all right and so perhaps you can turn the notch up to have more democracy which is exactly what israel is doing right now israel is increasing the power of democracy by giving parliament more power to appoint judges and it is reducing the power of the Israeli Supreme court, right? It is moving in a more democratic direction. Now many intellectuals have argued the United States would be better off with less democracy or less capitalism or, you know, less socialism. So it's just a matter of like fine tuning this element or that element. All right, When I first got up this morning and uh, I, I clicked on Twitter for some reason. The first thing I did this morning at about 5.20 a.m. And I saw an article here by Stuart Ritchie on inews.co.uk. And I started reading it, and you had to subscribe. So I showed out three pounds. So I think that's, what, $3.50 for a three-month subscription to inews. And he says important article here don't panic about social media harming your child's mental health the evidence is weak we're told the internet destroys children's mental health but stuart ritchie read all the relevant studies and sought little support the claim so a study is not a study is not a study right some studies are much more profound they have many more participants they're much more rigorous than other studies so you can't just say oh we got two studies supporting side a but we've got 14 studies supporting side B. Therefore, side B is more likely to be correct. What you need to pay attention to is the quality of the studies. Right. So if you've been on social media recently, you won't have been able to avoid people talking about how bad social media is. For more than a decade across many countries, children's and teens' mental health has been getting worse, more anxiety, more depression, lower happiness in general. And the trend looks even worse for girls. You know what's really bad for your mental health, apparently? Being left wing. Being left wing and female tends to be really bad for your mental health. Also being far right, dissident right, uh, tends to be really bad for your mental health. But if you're somewhere towards the middle, towards conservative, all right, that tends to be, you know, pretty good comparatively for your mental health. So here's Stuart Ritchie. Several commentators with big audiences are claiming that social media, along with the smartphones that enable it, is now known to be a cause of these growing mental health problems in children's and teens first we have the psychologist jonathan height writing a detailed article on substack called social media is a major cause of the mental illness epidemic in teen girls here's the evidence we have other writers on substack explain how they changed their mind and they now agree with jonathan height and how honestly it's probably the phones that cause teenage mental health problems then you've got john burn murdoch who just sounds so impressive at the financial times john burn murdoch Writes these columns with all these statistics and all these studies, and it just seems like, oh man, this guy is so empirically grounded. You know, this guy is is you know a real scholar. He's a real maven of statistics. But I, I consistently find that the that his work is not nearly as impressive as he comes across. So now he's he's writing a column: smartphones and social media destroying children's health. Now the message of these articles is broadly the same for about. Eight years now, they've been arguing that uh, the evidence is in, and to quote John Byrne Murdoch, it makes an overwhelming case that smartphones are having a catastrophic effect. Stuart Ritchie says, "I don't agree. Having read all the relevant studies in this area, I think a lot of the evidence is shaky. A lot of the evidence is unclear. It's okay to still be undecided. So here are three things you should not do when you're faced with studies." These are three common misleading tactics people use in the debate over the effects of smartphones and social media and they use with regard to academic studies. So one is where you draw the vertical lines on graphs, right? The the way you graph things can often be highly misleading. Like much of the the graph making is completely arbitrary. They don't mention all the other major events that happen at the same time as say you have the introduction of iPhones. Yet vote counting where they tote up the scientific studies that say one thing and then studies that say a different thing. But this does not take into account the quality of the studies. I mean, Jonathan Haidt does this again and again and again. All right, really bad epistemics, bro. And then claiming causality from longitudinal studies. So when researchers run a longitudinal observational study, I mean, they give people questionnaires over a period of several months. It's not the same as running an experiment. All right, just... Relying on what people say, what people report, is a really shaky basis for a a scientific study because people frequently have distorted understandings of reality and of themselves. Also, correlation does not mean causation. Right? There are lots of studies in different directions uh, about uh, social media use causing mental health problems. So the more statistical studies you run, the more likely you are to find spurious misleading results. So researchers that run a lot of tests can just ignore the results that they don't like and highlight the ones that they want to highlight. And uh, a lot of good stuff here from Stuart Ritchie. But meanwhile, let me catch up. Right.
5: So. When you watch the film Dark Waters with Mark Ruffalo, and the DuPont chemical company is producing these Teflon pans that consumers are buying, saying, oh, isn't it so nice to have a non-stick pan? So they're buying these pans and then come to realize that the chemicals that DuPont is using is causing birth defects, cancer. So ultimately, DuPont is responsible, right? Because they knew there were issues. They pushed the product forward anyway, and they poisoned a lot of people. But as much as DuPont is responsible, none of this would have happened if there weren't Consumers who were willing to unwittingly consume these products. Social media is entirely destructive. And any screen, like the YouTube video you're watching right now, it's harming your circadian rhythms. There are all sorts of poisonings that we know are happening. Like, I've tried to be healthy throughout my life. But I, like millions of other Americans, make poor food choices. You know, buy some processed food or you buy the non-organic or you buy what's convenient. You buy what's cheap. You buy what's tasty. We have some degree of complicity. It may be passive.
0: So here's a consistent problem with deep left joker. He makes all these pronouncements, which indicate he's read quite a bit, but he gives you no sense of the basis on which he's making these pronouncements. He doesn't usually list sources, and so he just makes these, you know, sweeping pronouncements. Social media screen use is really bad for you. Uh, there's, there's no. Strong evidence for that. It's bad for some people, it's good for other people, it's, uh, it's you know, indifferent for, for others. But uh, Deep Left Joker just all the time, he just makes these like grand sweeping statements, but he feels no moral or scholarly imperative to provide evidence for these grand sweeping statements. He hears one thing and he just seizes on it, but he's really crap at evaluating the things that he hears and reads. Right? He doesn't have the ability somehow to evaluate and to ponder and to think through the things that he hears. He just seizes on things that he hears or reads that uh, fit in with some point that he wants to make, but he does not seem to have the power of evaluating them. They may come
5: from a certain level of ignorance. It may come from laziness. It might not be malicious. We might not be actively trying to destroy ourselves with our choices, but we all make choices that have some level of complicity, even if only through the complicity of ignorance. Now for us to stop making these choices, to return to organic forms of produce and animal husbandry, to get rid of the non sick pans, to ban the forever chemicals, to ban plastics, to return to glass, all of these things are gonna increase the price of goods. They're gonna make them less convenient. It's gonna make life harder. And I don't see the democratic masses being willing to impose these kinds of stoic limitations on themselves. And so what ends up happening is when you look at the complicity of people in their own destruction and their unwillingness to rise up for their own sake and to ban these harmful poisons, then you get into situations where you, know, you basically end up supporting some form of authoritarianism or fascism or you know, dictatorship of the proletariat where uh, it's kind of Rousseauian general will and the people don't know what's best for them or they're not willing to do what's best for them. And so they must be forced to be free.
0: Okay, more, more great stuff from Stuart Ritchie. I'm really getting my three pounds worth here. And Elliot Blatt says, uh, Deep Left Jokel is right for, for a change. So he, he links to this uh, amazing article here, a comprehensive review of randomized clinical trials in three medical journals. The most prestigious medical journals reveals 396 medical reversals right? The ability to identify medical reversals and other low-value medical practices. So medicine is not a science. It contains elements of science, but it's not a science. Like economics, probably not a science. It contains elements of science. Psychology, not a science, but contains elements of science. So, so much of what you're told by your teachers and by your doctors and by public health experts is just does not have strong scientific basis and public health officials and people who speak to the media they're unable to let you know the basis of you know what they're saying or how important it is say to drink eight glasses of water as opposed to just drinking when you're 30, thirsty you don't generally get from public health officials uh, any kind of nuanced understanding of how much a particular intervention into a life will you know improve your health so we need to, you know, identify medical reversals, other low value medical practices to reduce spending on stupidity and to boost people's health. So analyzing more than three thousand randomized controlled trials published in three leading medical journals, the Journal of the American Medical Association, The Lancet, and the New England Journal of Medicine, we have identified three hundred and ninety-six medical reversals. Most of the studies, ninety-two percent, were conducted on populations in high income countries. Cardiovascular disease was the most common medical category, and medication was the most common type of intervention. So it's not like in science everything is just always up for debate, right? Whenever there has been a scientific consensus over the past one hundred and fifty years, that has not been shot down, to, to the best of my knowledge. But medicine is rarely the the same as you know a widespread scientific consensus. There are just too many variables in medicine. And ethical practices, when you're conducting trials, that limits how scientific you can be about various medical interventions. So low-value medical practices, these are medical practices that are either ineffective or, or that cost more than other options that offer similar effectiveness. These practices can frequently result in physical and emotional harm. They undermine public trust in medicine. They have an opportunity cost. They have a financial cost. So identify and eliminating low-value medical practices reduces costs and improve health care. Uh, it's often difficult to identify medical reversals, but even when there is high-quality evidence, often you have medical professions who want to keep on doing something that has low value, such as tonsillectomies. Right? We knew in the 1930s that uh, most tonsillectomies were useless, right? that they did not contribute much to someone's health. But the medical profession kept, you know, operating and performing tonsillectomies, you know, into the 60s and 70s at a high rate, way above that which was beneficial. So, too, with uvorectomies, removing women's ovaries, Uh, doctors do this all the time. It has negative life results. It has negative results for a woman's ability to enjoy sex. It has negative results on all sorts of different health categories. Women who undergo these procedures have lower lifespan, but doctors get to make money. By you know performing these surgeries, I mean, how many people have you known who've only had one back surgery? All right, w- once you go in for back surgery, it always leads to you know other back surgeries.
5: This is not really rational, right? Um, you're taking people who are making poor choices, and you're trying to baby them. You're trying to impose some kind of paternalism on them. You're saying, you know, the aristocracy has this noblesse oblige, this obligation to guide the people, to parent the people. Well, that makes sense if the people are your children, and that makes sense if the people are your resource. If you're a farmer and you have a bunch of cows, it's your obligation as a, as a farmer to feed your cows, to shelter your cows, to clean your cows. If your cows get sick, you give them medicine. If your cows get hurt, you, know, you mend their wounds. Even if eventually you're going to eat the cows, you still take care of your cows because it's your cows. and even if they're going off to slaughter, you want them to be healthy. You want them to be happy. You, know, you want your cows to be well. You don't want to mistreat and abuse your animals. That kind of ethic, I think, is what has driven historical state-led paternalism, is you know, the majority of the population produces useful labor on the farms, in the factories. The average Joe, Joe the plumber, right? He does useful stuff. He helps build up our economy, build up our army, build up our military, build up our industrial capacity, so that we can sail across the world and colonize and imperialize, that so we can invent new things, new technologies, we can support a priest class, we can support an academic class, a scholarly class, with the efforts of Joe the Plumber. But technology has gone so far that you know plumbing is still a, a well-paid profession. But
0: yeah, plumbers and garbage men have done far more for human lifespan than than doctors. Right, just having good sanitary practices having sewage systems, right, that, that does far more for you know, public health than uh, most most forms of, of medical care. So probably wondering, you know, what, what does Alan Dershowitz have to say?
4: Actually, come forward now after the comments made by Costello? He has proved that the main witness is going to be a perjuring liar on the witness stand. And that puts the district attorney in a terrible position. If he uses Cohen as a witness, he could actually lose his bar license. It's unethical to put a witness on the stand who you know is lying, and he has to know that Cohen will be lying. Or he tries the case without Cohen, which is very difficult. Or he does the right thing. He drops the case. In in Get Trump, I go through each of the four cases against Donald Trump, and I prove by precedent and evidence— that none of the four cases has any basis in law. All four of them are politically motivated. And I think the worst and the weakest case is the one in New York, which is based on a sworn, uh, admitted uh, perjurer who lied to his own lawyers. You know, recently a court said, if you lie to your lawyer, you lose the privilege because that's so bad. But we know that, uh, that he lied to his lawyers. His lawyers have essentially broken the privilege and said that he lied to us, he told us he was the only one involved in this payment, that nobody else was involved. How is he going to explain on the witness stand, did you lie now, did you lie then? Nobody is going to believe him. So this is the possible case to bring against Trump. And I would hope that maybe grand jurors finally would wake up and say, "Look, we're not ham sandwiches here. We're going to stand up for the law. And the law says, no, you don't indict under these circumstances.
0: Okay, Alan Dershowitz. All right, back to some of these excellent Stuart Ritchie columns in inews.co.uk. How parents can actually help their children avoid peanut allergies. So science's U-turn on peanut allergies reminds us to ask for evidence even when it comes to expert advice. So anyone who had a baby more than a couple of decades ago could be forgiven for being surprised by last week's news. A new study appeared giving recommendations on what you should do to help your child avoid a peanut allergy. The advice is the exact opposite of what health authorities were saying not long ago. So around 2% of people in Western countries have peanut allergies, and they're no joke, all right, they're very serious. But the best way to avoid developing a peanut allergy, all right, is to feed your kid peanuts very early in life. But for decades, the public health advice was, you know, don't don't give uh, children peanuts before, say, the age of three from the... UK Department of Health to the American Academy of Pediatrics, right, No peanuts for children until age three, no peanuts for the mother during breastfeeding. And what was the basis for this advice? It was always incredibly thin, always incredibly thin. So now we get a high quality randomized controlled trial appearing in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. And it now gives parents the opposite guidelines introduce peanuts very early on and that will significantly reduce allergies to peanuts. So we have had so many medical reversals over the years, right? One study from 2019, which I just mentioned, found 396 times when this has happened. So all these reversals tell us one important thing. Thing, Scientists have to dramatically raise their standards when they're giving advice. It's not good enough to make recommendations or to treat patients on the basis of a few small, low-quality studies. So ask experts for their evidence. Another article here by Stuart Ritchie. Science is bad at measuring depression. Science is ruining attempts to understand depression. Scientists have been trying for decades to locate the specific difference in the brain that's the cause of depression syndrome. So think about the incentives that are operating w- with regard to depression, right? The more Americans who are depressed, the more power doctors, particularly psychiatrists, have, and the more money, that drug makers can make and therefore doctors can make for prescribing medication. So doctors and psychiatrists are heavily incentivized to increase the number of Americans who are diagnosable with depression or anxiety, some kind of syndrome. But most depression is just a normal, healthy reaction to life circumstance. And we don't have any radiographic tests or blood tests that will back up know a mental health diagnosis right if you break your leg you can get an x-ray you can see exactly where the bone is broken you know exactly what's causing you the problem that's not the case for physical symptoms if you you know suddenly have problems with your ability to express words right uh you can do a brain scan but uh, it may not may not uh, solve the problem then there's depression so Scientists have been trying for decades. Right, the, the whole psychiatry profession has been trying for decades to find a biological basis for their claims about human nature, and they've essentially come up with zero. Remember, for for decades, from the late 1980s on, we were told that uh, uh, drugs drugs uh, they they just you know rebalance certain you know chemicals in in our brain, and and that's how they work. And that's not how they work at all. Right, so. Prozac, all right? And drugs like Prozac. Supposedly, they're just evening out chemicals in your your mind. So scientists have been trying for decades to locate the specific difference in the brain that is the cause of depression syndrome, and it has not been going well, right? We haven't made any progress, right? Essentially, you can't find radiographic or blood results for mental health diagnoses. We're not even making progress. So what differentiates a depressed person's brain, right? There's just no evidence of anything physical making a difference. What we do know is that circumstances, situations, right, largely determine whether someone's going to be depressed or not. Right? If you lose a job, lose a love, lose status, lose income, lose opportunities, lose friendships, right? lose a regular loving relationship, right, you're going to be depressed, and that's a normal, natural, healthy reaction to you know, a loss if if your situation changes so that you lose many things from your life you'll normally naturally and even healthfully be depressed because you will then go into a more introspective state and think about new ways that you can approach life so that you can gain the things that you want so Many researchers say, instead of saying someone has depression, we should instead focus on what symptoms they have, low mood, insomnia, lack of interest in things they used to enjoy. But uh, people with depression tend to have very few symptoms in common with each other. So then how useful is the whole depression diagnosis, right? there's not much of a scientific basis for arguing that science, uh, that that, uh, depression as a brain disorder even exists, right? Depression is just our summary word for someone who's experiencing, you know, a few of a whole grab bag of symptoms, right? So therefore it's no surprise we struggle to find where depression is in the brain. So this really isn't that far from the radical anti-psychiatric position that mental disorders aren't really brain disorders. Right, So scientists have done a really lousy job at debunking that attitude. So understanding the biological basis of psychiatric disorders is a noble goal. And it's not as though we've made zero progress, but we've made very, very little progress. So it's up to scientists to standardize, to run studies, where they know depression has been measured in as similar way as possible among all their different participants, to embrace new approaches that characterize depression as a network of symptoms rather than this single monolithic cause.
5: The average person, this was said by Mitt Romney, I think back in 2012, that the average person takes out more in taxes than they put in. Like 53%, right? That was the figure at the time. Sure, it's higher now. If you take up all the prices of the roads and the healthcare and the welfare and the free food and the free education and the subsidized college, all the stuff that the government pays into, like the majority of people get more out of it than they pay into it in the
3: final analysis. And so, you know, throughout history, you could
5: say that the elites were parasites, the bankers are parasites, they're usurers, they're taking 1% off the top. They don't perform any useful labor. And therefore, we should have communist revolution, we should abolish the elites, the capitalists, we should give power to the people, the workers, because they are the ones doing the real productive labor. I mean, that kind of argument made a lot more sense when we lived in an agricultural or an industrial economy. But in an economy
3: where AI and automation has
5: made the manual laborer more and more obsolete, less and less needed. There, are, there is still a need for strawberry pickers, but it's decreasing.
0: There, there was always a need for excellence. All right, There's never been a society that doesn't have excellence. And if you have excellence and you have excellence in a you know, service or a production that is needed by society, it would make sense that you would then achieve elite status uh laponia says i have put way more into the social welfare system through taxes than i've ever taken out nobody i know has even taken welfare and whatnot right here is something that does make a big difference with mental health and that is your attitude towards life so we have recent essay for social science and medicine mental health you have epidemiologist recognizing a significant gap in depressive attitudes between liberals and conservative teens right this gap was present in all years of the study from 2005 to 2018 it grew significantly starting in 2012. liberal girls tend to be significantly more depressed than boys so why are liberal teens more consistently depressed than conservatives well we generally find that uh, conservatives are consistently happier than liberals right the general social survey which is pretty much the gold standard for social surveys finds that there has been a consistent 10 percentage point gap between the share of conservatives versus the share of liberals who report being very happy right conservatives do not just report higher levels of happiness they also report higher levels of meaning in their life Right, so why do people do painful things? Like I start every day with a cold shower, I exercise quite a bit, I lift weights, I do push ups i do pull ups many you know I take a cold shower even when it's like thirty eight degrees outside, so these are frequently painful things, but I get meaning and purpose and identity you know out of engaging in painful practices when you convert to Orthodox Judaism, there are fast days, there are all sorts of restrictions on your life but when you take on practices that add identity, purpose, meaning to your life, you'll generally feel happier than if you don't have those levels of identity, purpose, and meaning in your life. So conservatives consistently have higher levels of meaning in their life. And this happiness and meaning is enhanced when conservatives get to surround themselves with others like themselves. Conservatives are more likely to be patriotic they are more likely to be religious, they are more likely to be happily, they're more likely to be married, they're more likely to be happily married, they are less likely to divorce. Religiosity tends to correlate with greater subjective and objective well-being, so does patriotism, so does marriage. So conservatives tend to feel deeper connections with their country, with their family, and with God and the universe. Conservatives tend to be more conventionally attractive than liberals, they tend to have better sex lives, they tend to be healthier. People who are healthy in childhood are more likely to become conservative as adults. People with higher measured cognitive ability are also more likely to conserve economic conservatism and cultural liberalism. So there's a pretty big happiness gap between conservatives and liberals.
5: The labor pool of manual laborers is decreasing and it's being paid less and less well because it's less and less valuable because they're less and less in demand. You know, the supply of people who are capable of picking strawberries is pretty constant. I'm capable of picking strawberries, you're capable of it, everyone's capable of it, but the demand for it keeps dropping. And so the price of a strawberry picker keeps dropping. The, the, the economics are shifting. So the logic of paternalism which just had a cold, rational, like, if you're a farmer, you take care of your cows. If you're a king, you take care of your people. It makes economic sense. And kings who don't respect that law and farmers who don't respect that law of paternalism, they lose. You know, if you let your cows die, you lose money. If you let your people die...
0: doggone it. there's an interesting conversation here between Ann Coulter and Heather MacDonald. So Hello, about I'm
9: Ann Coulter. Welcome to my Substack video. Very controversial- With the great Heather McDonald. I'm so happy she's come back. A few years ago, uh, she wrote a blockbuster book, The War on Cops, How the New Attack on Law and Order Makes Everyone Less Safe. I read it when it came out, and I've been listening to it again on audio. Uh, that's why I was emailing you, Heather. Um, there was one chapter in particular. I mean, it's just a knockout book. To go through the details of Ferguson again, that alone is, is worth the price of the book. And I would say chapter 16, um, about Chicago and and the underlying problem of the vast disparity in the crime, black and white crime rate and black and everybody else crime rate uh, comes down to the black family, which is something, i.e. the massive illegitimacy rate that has been foist upon us, which has been a little specialty of mine. Um, but that chapter, that is worth six times what the price of the book is. <laughs> so welcome, Heather. That's what I want to talk about today.
10: Oh, fabulous. Well, unfortunately, it is a perennial topic and um... It's good to just get facts down like for the Ferguson riots, how quickly we forget, you know, so everybody needs to do their part to document uh, the various
9: urban atrocities that we've been through because the media is obviously going to do its best to memory hold them. I thought it was especially fun because I was watching, of course, um, Ferguson as it was happening Um, and I forget his last name, but that is um, George Floyd's compatriot Dorian was all over MSNBC (laughs) talking to one of my friends, you know. I'm not sure I totally believe everything Dorian says, but it was gospel at MSNBC. Um, Lawrence O'Donnell had on, there was a, a black lady who was sitting in her car, and this was like introduced like the Rosetta Stone of the evidence, and she had a direct view of it. Um, this, this is going to blow it away. Lawrence O'Donnell, nope, nope, this is premeditated murder. He's going away for life. And I'm just listening to all these witnesses on TV. How many times has the media instantly believed the alleged eyewitnesses, and it all turned out to be horse crap?
10: well i don 't know if they 've actually acknowledged their error, and many people have not. you know You can go to a college campus and you 'll get the usual say their names" chant thrown at you and Michael Brown is inevitably included in that. so the fact that the Obama Justice Department, through clenched teeth kicking and screaming to the you know finish line, had to admit that the hands up don 't shoot narrative about Michael Brown had no factual basis whatsoever has made no difference in the narrative. Unfortunately, you know, I feel compelled to say this uh, we are absolutely right to put up a very large wall of skepticism before these narratives about innocent uh, blacks gunned down by racist white police officers. But we also have seen cases where the police officer's account is not borne out by, by video. And that is most recently embodied, perhaps in the most egregious way, by the Tyree Nichols uh, shooting, in, in, or rather beating, in, in Memphis. So I would mm-hmm.
0: say... Okay, let's get a little bit on the possible banning of TikTok and... ...who's on the
6: Twitter files and exposing potential collusion between government and media to hide truth. Matt, it's good to have you this morning. Thanks very much for being
11: here. Thanks for having me, Maria.
6: Well, you have integrity and want free speech all around. What is your thoughts on Tic Tac? Does anything change in your mind about not wanting censorship, even though we know that the Chinese Communist Party has laws in place? Any Chinese company will be under law, forced to give up any data that the CCP wants. Does that change your uh, opinion about the potential of a ban on Tic Tac?
11: Well, Honestly, what it reminds me of is early 2017 when Google, uh, Twitter, and Facebook were dragged to the hill by the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, and uh, you know, it was demanded of them that they come up with a plan to prevent the sowing of discord. Governments are always going to want these platforms to guarantee to them that they will have access to uh, the content moderation machinery of these platforms, and TikTok is probably in the same position as those platforms were back in 2017. It's a very difficult question, speech-wise, like, what do you do about these platforms? So I, I'm not really sure how I feel about it. I, I think it would be a major unprecedented step to block it.
6: It would be an unprecedented step, but you also have these efforts by foreign adversaries to buy into U.S. media. Look, Take Russia. We talked last week about the potential of an acquisition of Forbes Media. Now, uh, I heard from one of those people, Shiv Kempa, who said, no, we are not attached to Vladimir Putin. And yet there are many people who feel that that group wanting to take over Forbes Media is an issue. So what about that? I mean, the U.S. media companies uh, are U.S. owned with the exception of a TikTok or, 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 or perhaps if we see a Forbes Media deal go through from a foreign adversary.
11: I think the opinion of Americans historically has always been that our democracy is vibrant enough that we can withstand propaganda from other countries by simply having a better argument, um, making a better argument ourselves to our own population. Uh, That's the principle of free speech. If uh, other governments want to try to propagandize our population, uh, I doubt they're going to succeed, frankly, unless we Mm. do a very, very bad job of of talking to our own people about what our goals are.
6: Yeah, I like that. I like that analysis. Matt, let's talk about Twitter files because you were able to expose really what looked like collusion between the FBI and government agencies and Twitter. What what strikes you most about what just took place in terms of Exposing uh, the uh, the uh, partnership, it looked like.
11: Well, our most recent um, discoveries involve a, a something called Stanford's Virality Project, which was a, you know, it was created by Stanford University. It's an outgrowth of something that was called the Election Integrity Partnership that was, uh, that was founded in 2020. There's a lot of state money uh, involved in this uh, project, but what was most significant about what we found, we found emails to Twitter in which this project uh, told them that they should consider as standard misinformation on your platform, true stories that might promote hesitancy or true stories of vaccine side effects. So we now know that a lot of these... Uh, anti-disinformation programs, whether they're actual state agencies or whether they're NGOs that are state-funded, they're targeting true information that just happens to be counter-narrative, which I think is extremely dangerous.
6: Yeah, it is extremely dangerous. And then you've got this administration wanting to set up a disinformation governance board. How scary is that?
11: It's terrifying. They've tried a couple of times. The disinformation governance board last year uh, had to be basically paused after three weeks, and then they threw it away. But they continued to have something called the MDM subcommittee. Now, just last week, they essentially announced that they, they're no longer going to have that, this misinformation, disinformation, malinformation subcommittee. But there's another subcommittee that's coming up behind it that I think may uh, essentially inherit the same mantle that the governance board was supposed to have. So we have to be on the lookout for these government efforts to try to centralize the cleansing of, quote, disinformation from the media landscape, which I don't think is the government.
6: You know, Matt, how do you feel about all of this? Because I know before you started, you know, discovering all of this uh, really bad behavior, you identified as a Democrat. And now you've got all of your friends, quote unquote, in the media attacking you for exposing this.
11: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I was raised a traditional ACLU liberal. I believed in free speech my whole life. That was one of the things that attracted me, frankly, to, to the Democratic Party when I was a kid, uh, was the idea that we were the party that believed in letting everybody have a say, and yeah. we'll just make a better argument, and that's how this, this system works. But apparently something very dramatic has changed in politics in America, and there's been a shift. There's no question about it anymore, that, that now uh, the parties have had a complete reversal on how they view yeah. these issues.
6: Amazing. All right, Matt, thanks very much for being here this morning. Independent journalist Matt how you be thank you. We'll be right back.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Matt. Let's get a little more Heather McDonald. I say probably
10: the ratio of lying is very much uh, on the side of the apologists for, for black criminals nevertheless. Sadly, uh, sometimes officers don't tell the truth either. And I know I don't need to tell you that, Anne, but, but you know, am- every time... Go ahead.
9: Whenever people, say, uh, people on our side, this is um, sort of writ large, are always um, very quick to say, well, of course, there are the bad apples. Of course, there are the bad apples. Yes, there are bad apples in every line of work. When are, are, are liberals going to start saying about activists? Of course, there are bad apple activists. Um, how about trial lawyers? they are bad apple trial lawyers. There are the bad apple Democrats. I mean, I suppose it's better to be on the side of honesty and truth. But how about we get a few bad apples in the professions they like, because they're bad apples they are too. I'm surprised.
0: Okay, so I've been reading New York review of Books and uh, Stephen Weinberg, the late uh, physicist, had some interesting essays in here. And he makes the point, of course, we don't know everything with regard to science, but we do know some things. And we will continue to progress in science, but some j- scientific judgments will not change. So since the downfall of the phlogiston theory of fire and the caloric theory of heat in the 19th century... There has been no generally accepted theory in the exact sciences that has turned out to be simply wrong. So I think that's an interesting point here by the late Stephen Weinberg, the physicist. There has been no generally accepted theory in the exact sciences that has turned out to be simply wrong in the last 170 years. So the calculation of the Earth and the Sun, right, was was by uh, Lord Kelvin, was never generally accepted. It was vigorously contested by geologists and by biologists. We do have successful theories that then become refined. So with the advent of special and general relativity, it became clear that Isaac Newton's theories of motion and gravitation are approximations. They are valid for bodies moving slower than light in gravitational fields that are not too strong. But... Uh, the relativity theory does not make Newton's work a mistake. It does not revive Descartes, just the opposite. Relativity theory explains why Isaac Newton's theory works when it does work. So in the future, relativity theory will in turn experience similar reinterpretations, possibly in terms of string theory. So there have been things that we have established in science. It's not like it's all up for grabs.
10: As you're being as cautious and as you are in your condemnation of activists, this is something I've been thinking about recently, which is who gets to certify the activists? It's the most bizarre thing. You just declare that you're an advocate and you get treated as such. You know, We've seen this in New York City when I started writing about the vagrant population in the 1990s uh, when Giuliani was trying to do, and was doing heroic work to clean up the city both from the vagrants and from outright criminals. And you had groups like the Coalition for the Homeless that would just claim, okay, we're the advocates for this group and they're treated as such by courts. Now, yeah. you know, if you're gonna bring a class action, you have to pass some pretty stringent tests to be certified as a class. Uh, and, you know you know the rules of civil procedure probably better than I do at this point, but to be certified as an activist in order to represent uh, your clients, you don't need to pass any tests. And for sure, these at- activists and advocacy groups by and large are pursuing policies that are absolutely antithetical to their alleged client's interests because they are always shifting responsibility They're saying that, oh, my poor uh, victim group clients have no capacity to rein in their worst impulses, to abide by bourgeois values. And what they need is far more government aid, no strings attached, being shoveled to them. So I've yet to see an activist uh, as, as certified by the press that has any business in claiming to be pursuing the best interests of its clients. So they're
9: all bad apples, you know, absent some very surprising proof to the contrary, in my view. That's a really, really great point. One of the things I love about all of your writing um, is that you're actually at these community meetings. You are in the neighborhoods. You're talking to the people who live there in the badass inner-city neighborhoods who are terrified of crime, who want the cops on the street. And you're quoting them. Where are the activists? Have they talked to these people? It's the eternal mystery. I would say that about the New York Times as well. My first writing about uh, policing began after
10: the Amadou Diallo shooting in 1999, and the New York Times was running initially three and a half articles a day on the racist police, and they would have articles about a community police community meeting in a park where everybody's being kumbaya and hands across the water, and the police are flipping burgers. And their perspective is from gangbangers sitting on some bleachers looking at these racist cops and grumbling under their breath about how oppressive they are. That's their. That's the people that the Times talks to. They don't go to these meetings. But the other thing I've done, Anne, is go to these nonprofit service agencies, and this comes up in my Chicago piece that you mentioned in the in the War on Cops. Uh, that we're, we're told, gee, if we only have more funding of these violence reduction projects and social services, that'll make things better. You go to these groups and it's just incredibly depressing. The offices are disorganized. The people can't run things. There are a few baby steps ahead of their clients. And I've, when I was doing a lot of writing on welfare and, and, and vagrancy in the 1990s, uh, I would go to these groups that are above all representing the welfare clients and say, well, tell me about fathers. Do you think that family formation is a relevant consideration in trying to uh, combat poverty? And to a person I would get, no, no, absolutely not. Instead, they're doing their little daycare centers in high schools for teen mothers that completely normalize out of wedlock childbearing. So the the values, the political values are lousy, but the sheer competence levels are also really bad. And the idea that shifting more taxpayer money into these social service groups is gonna solve anything is completely ludicrous.
0: All right, uh, some straight talk there from Heather McDonald. So I've been going through the New York Review of Books, the Archives and a terrific essay here on the Whig history of science. So when I was doing a show with Kevin Michael Grace, he would frequently condemn the, the, the Whig theory of history, which is that that uh, history is inevitably progressing and that we're just so much more elevated today than we used to be. So it, is, it can also be called presentism, looking at the past through the eyes of the present. So it was a Cambridge historian, Herbert Butterfield, and this is reading from Stephen Weidberg where he essentially endorses the Whig history of science. So he begins, there was the Cambridge historian, Herbert Butterfield, who described and condemned what he called the Whig interpretation of history. So he declared in 1931 that the study of the past with one eye, so to speak, upon the present is the source of all sins and sophistries in history. So he spread special scorn of those historians who subject the past to contemporary moral judgments. So his strictures were fervently taken up by later generations of historians, and so being called a Whig came to be seen as terrifying to historians as being called sexist or Eurocentric or Orientalist, nor was the history of science spared. So historian of science Bruce Hunt recalls when he was in graduate school in the early 1980s, Whiggish was a common term of abuse in the history of science, To avoid that charge, people turned away from telling stories of scientific progress or from giving big-picture stories of any kind, Said they shifted to accounts of small episodes tightly focused in time and space. As Steven Weinberg contends here, through his courses on the history of physics and astronomy, I've come to think that whatever one thinks of wiggery in other sorts of history, it has a rightful place in the history of science. It is clearly not possible to speak of right and wrong in the history of art or fashion, nor I think it is possible in the history of religion. One can argue about whether it is possible in political history, but in scientific history, we really can't say who was right. Now, so Bernard says, KMG is moving to a new apartment soon. We'll start up his show again on Rumble. Bernard says, What are the shelf life of these social media apps anyway? Well, apps like uh, Tinder and uh, JSwipe, I mean, they've been around for what? Ten years or so? Luke Croft says Chi- chai ChiCom infiltration, Chicom indoctrination, ChiCom subversion, and the international ChiCom conspiracy to sap and impurify our precious bodily fluids. Is TikTok even going to be here after China collapses? asked Bernard. Look, Forty, how did you overcome your CFS? Was it eating meat? It was swallowing beef organ capsules. That helped me overcome my chronic fatigue syndrome, and it happened within two weeks. I resumed normal levels of health, so it was a night and day, very fast difference. Bernard says, being depressed, being blue, sometimes is normal. I think conservatives have a tragic sense of life. For example, conservatives have a skeptical view of human nature. People on the left tend to have an optimistic view of human nature, therefore Conservatives can better deal with the blues. The liberals instead go to the doctor and get pills, says Bernard. Laponius, he is a strong believer in engaging in painful practices to enhance his identity, purpose and meaning in life. So he starts every day by pulling out a fingernail with a pair of pliers. After that, the rest of the day is a breeze. Bernard quotes Paradise Lost by John Milton. The mind is its own place. It can make heaven out of hell or hell out of heaven. Elliot Blatt says depression is a spiritual malady. It's also a realistic, normal, natural, and healthy response to devastating loss. Because when you're depressed, you stop doing many of the things you habitually do. You rethink how you put your energies and your efforts and then you replay possible changes to where you'll direct your energy and efforts and you replay them you play them out in your mind think how that well they'll work for you and so depression gives you downtime to think about new ways of living and then you know trying out new ways of using your energy so according to butterfield we can never say that the ultimate issue the succeeding course of events or the lapse of time have proved that Luther was right against the Pope or that Pitt was wrong against Charles Jamal Fox. But we can say with complete confidence, as a Stephen Weinberg, that the lapse of time has shown that about the solar system, Copernicus was right against the adherents of Ptolemy, and Isaac Newton was right against the followers of Descartes. Though so the history of science thus has special features that make a Whig interpretation useful. And it has another aspect that makes the idea of keeping an eye on the present troublesome to some professional historians. Historians who have not themselves worked as scientists may feel that they cannot match the working scientists' understanding of present science. But scientists like myself cannot watch the professional historians' mastery of source material. So, who should write the history of science then, historians or scientists? The answer to me seems obvious both.
9: Yes, that's why I particularly wanted to talk about that chapter, because, um, I mean, there's often one major overlying problem that no one will talk about or no one will implement. I mean, in the case of immigration, how about a wall? That solves like 17 different problems or at least makes them ameliorates them, makes them a lot easier to solve. Let's start with a really big thing. And it's the same thing with um, whether it's crime, whether it's um, unequal incomes, um, whether it is, oh, a massive disparity in education. It all goes back to the Black family. And you have these white people, whether they're liberal or conservative, who it's it's like they're hiding this secret from the black community. No, we're not going to tell you this, how to make your life better. And, oh, ooh, can't talk talk about that. No, the New York Times, Hollywood, all these women's magazines. I wrote a lot about this in, in a chapter in Godless. It's just our entire culture is pushing illegitimacy and just generation after generation of illegitimacy where there's never going to be a good outcome. You have a great line in that chapter where it's, you describe just an utterly dysfunctional family. I forget which one.
0: Okay, so if you believe in your religion seriously so you believe that there is a moral law in the universe then you would be inclined to something like a Whig understanding of history there is there are absolute moral standards against which human behavior should be qualified and judged so uh, butterfield the historian who decried the Whig version of history he says that if morality were an absolute system equally binding on all places and all times, then the historian would be driven now to watch the story of men's growing consciousness of that moral order or the gradual discovery of it. Now Butterfield was a devout Methodist, but he did not believe that there was an absolute moral order that was revealed to us by history or religion or anything else. But he did not doubt that there are laws of nature equally binding on all places and times, like the law of gravity was equally binding on people 2,500 years ago as it is today. So it is precisely the story of the growing consciousness of the laws of nature that the Whig historian of physics hopes to tell. But that story cannot be told without keeping an eye on our present knowledge of the natural world
9: one it was, but some young teenage black kid involved in a horrible crime. And, you know, he and his brothers have the same mother and they all have different fathers and they've never seen their father. Mm-hmm. And the mother may have left and gone you know, 200 miles away, left them with their grandmothers. And then you say something like um, a class on how to get health insurance is not going to help this situation.
10: Yeah. Well, I talk about I, I went to these various social service groups out in the far south side of Chicago, Roseland and Altgeld Gardens, which ironically is where Obama did his Alinskyite utterly feckless community organizing in 1984 when he was a year out of college. So there's a, a really ironic storyline there because 1984 uh, was when you had Benji Wilson, a high school basketball star who was gunned down by gangs. Uh, and and that just continued. In, in 1994, uh, you had an 11-year-old boy, Yummy Sandifer, who uh, out, broke out in a gang shooting, killed a girl, and his gang compatriots then executed him so that he wouldn't uh, snitch. On his gang rivals, you had a five-year-old boy, Eric Morse, who was dropped out of a 14-story public housing project by an, a 14-year-old and a, a, a 10-year-old because he had refused to uh, steal candy for them. And then the the whole hook for this story was the Darian Albert fatal beating in 20, 20, 2009 uh, that sort of got the country's attention again. Before they all turn there, before we all turn our eyes away, this was a boy who was caught up in a big gang battle that was going on in the middle of an intersection in the same Obama neighborhood of Altgeld Gardens in Roseland, and uh, his rival gang members, and he was standing there just completely uh, without any kind of provocation. They start punching him. He goes down. They start stomping on his head. A favored weapon uh, in this gang brawl was railroad ties, and they start bashing him in with railroad ties. He's only uh, taken out of the fray by believe it or not, another youth youth uh, recreation center, youth services center, a lot of good they've done there, who drag him inside, but it was too late by then. Well, all of these Kids, these killers and their victims, all come from fatherless families. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's 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 endemic. Benji Wilson hadn't seen his mother; she lived four hours away. He was bouncing around among among various kin. Uh, I describe a girl with ten siblings, who have five different fathers between them. Uh, but I would say, yes, we should definitely uh, blame whites. And you had a, a very uh, uh, important book by a guy named William Ryan, who I'm, I know you've heard about, called "Blaming the Victim." And he said, "Well, heaven forbid we should ever have any kind of expectations of." Of blacks to get their house in order because they 're simply the passive victims of, of uh, racist power structures. that having been said, mm-hmm. there was more of a tradition up through the 1950s of black leaders being willing to speak at least within their own community to the ongoing social breakdown and, mm-hmm. and You had uh, black newspapers like the Chicago Defender publishing articles about these are the sorts of behaviors you should engage in that will not bring shame upon our race and then in the '60s something changed and You got the rise of the idea, well, if we are too honest about our own problems, that's going to just cause, uh, create an excuse for resegregation. And so you got, even within the black community, a whole series of excuses and an unwillingness to say, you have any kind of personal efficacy. Uh, This is something for us to solve. Because at this point, there is nothing that the greater society, and let's be honest, that whites can do to re-knit the black family. You're absolutely right. It's the biggest problem, and it's going to be the one that's the hardest to solve. But it's got to come from within.
3: That's going to do it for today. Take care. Bye-bye.